Well, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10 and verses 1 through 4, Romans chapter 10 and verses 1 through 4. So last Sunday, we, uh, we picked up at Romans 9 and verse 33, and the intention was to go to 10 through 4, but I got a little bit more information than I, I had a little bit more to go, so I figured I will, I'm such a gracious pastor, I'll let you go. Um, so, but now we're going we're gonna to pick it up. We're going to finish this, this up here in verses 1 through 4. In a lot of ways, I'm glad that that happened. It gave me an opportunity to um, go back and look at it and to, to think a little bit more about um, this text. Now, one of the things I did forget to mention this, uh, as, as we began the service, maybe you've already picked it up as you've been listening to the songs that we've been singing, but today is what's, you know, a, a, among a lot of Protestant, a lot of evangelical churches called Reformation Day. And Reformation Day is really an important um, uh, kind of anniversary that happened in the context of history. And on October 31st in 1517, when a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, that he, uh, picked, he wrote down 95 theses, and he took this piece of paper, and he nailed it to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And the reason that he did this is he was, he was hoping to open up a discussion or a debate about some of the problems that was existing among the church of that time. And what that did is it sparked a, the Reformation and led to a huge break away from the medieval Catholic church to what is now called Protestant churches, which we, as a Baptist church, are part of the Protestant movement. And Protestants come from the word of protesters, basically protesting some of the significant doctrinal errors within the medieval church of, of that time. And at the very heart of that was, what does it mean to be saved? How can one come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And among the medieval church, the Catholic church, that it was based on a system of merits. You need to work or you need to earn your way into heaven or there is a way for you to make yourself righteous. Well, Martin Luther, through his study of Scripture, came to understand that that was completely wrong. In fact, the pivotal verse for him actually came from the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, where it says, For I am not ashamed of the, of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, not who merits it, not who works for it, but everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so what Martin Luther discovered was that the Bible did not teach a system of merits or a works-based salvation. The Bible taught that salvation was by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, and that all of this came through the Scripture. And it was such an incredible movement in the history of the church. And as a consequence, that's where we are today. So I think it's important for us to, you know, set aside a day to acknowledge that and to think about that and give God glory and praise for how he has worked in the context of history, how there was really a recovery of the gospel, a recovery of what it really means to come into a relationship with the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And here we are today, uh, we take that for granted, that we think about the concept of salvation being by grace through faith alone. 
is something that everybody should know. Should know. It's, it's not novel. And yet, among many people still in the world today, they are captured by a teaching that says that you can work your way into heaven. You can earn your salvation. And it is a, um, it is a very harsh way to live and to think that every day, did I do enough? Instead of resting in Christ, in his work alone, in knowing that it is Christ who covers me. It's not me, it is Christ. And that one day, when I stand before God in judgment, I do not stand hoping that I have righteousness. I stand with gratefulness and with praise that I have righteousness because it is Christ's righteousness who's been applied to me. Christ lived the perfect life for me. Christ died for me. And because of that, I can have the confidence and assurance that I have a relationship with God and that one day heaven will be my home. So that's, that's, what, that's what happened during the Reformation. And this is what we're going to actually continue to talk about today as we look at Romans 10 and verses 1 through 4. So look with me in this text as we think about what God is saying to us today. Romans 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to encounter you in the context of your word. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at this text together, that the only thing that people see and the only thing that they hear is you. And I pray the prayer of John the Baptist that I may decrease so that you may increase. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we begin looking at this text, I think it's just kind of important for us to maybe fit this in with where we have been because there is this continual conversation about Israel. And which, by the way, the idea of Israel has been on all of our minds over the last month or so when we think about what's been going on in that uh, country in the Middle East with the war that's going on between them and Hamas and, and all that. But th- here in uh, Romans 9, 10, and, and 11, we're thinking about Israel in a different light. And in this section, Paul is asking the question or maybe answering the question, it's why is it that Israel has overwhelmingly rejected the gospel? Why has it been almost unilateral that whenever Israel is confronted about the claims that the historical Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, they brush it off, they reject it, and they go a little bit further than rejecting it, they get very passionate and very zealous about making sure that that kind of message is not heard anywhere. And so Paul seeks in these chapters to answer the question, what is going on with Israel? Has God rejected Israel? Is there a future for Israel? And in doing so, one of the things that we find out is that Paul has a real heart for his own people. He is a Jew. He is a part of Israel. He was a Pharisee, and he loves his people even though that the Lord Jesus had commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and that began his primary ministry. 
his heart still rested with his own people. And it was his missionary practice that wherever he went, whatever town that it was, that he would find him a synagogue first. And he would pick up his Old Testament and he would preach Christ from the Old Testament and call people to receive Jesus as the one true Messiah. And consequently, every time he went to the synagogue, most of them rejected him. There'd be a few that would receive Christ by faith. There'd be a a number of God-fears, Gentile God-fears that would receive him. But by and large, most of Israel rejected it. And so Paul is thinking about this and and asking this question. And so that's the question that we're, we're trying to answer here in this text. And one of the things that we've learned is that one of the reasons that God has rejected Israel is because this is God's plan. This is God's plan for the propagation of the gospel to all people. That's what we see in Romans 9. And then as we look in Romans 10, that he actually gets us down more to the nitty gritty about what's actually going on in real space and time. Israel has rejected the gospel because they do not believe in Jesus. Israel has rejected the gospel because they are continuing down that path of trying to work and trying to establish and trying to earn their righteousness or feeling that salvation for them is obligated because they are Israel. We're children of Abraham. We came from Isaac. We came from Jacob. King David was our king. We are Israel. We are God's people And regardless of anything that happens around it, regardless of what we do, we're God's people and we're okay. And so Paul says, that's that's not how this works. It's never worked that way. In fact, back in Romans chapter 4, he tells them that your own father, Abraham, was not justified by works. He was justified by faith. And so he answers this question, and he does this because he has a passion for them. He wants them to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In fact, that's one of the things that we see in verse 1, that he has his heartfelt desire for the salvation of people, more specifically, his people. And so now, if you'll notice that this address, it starts off with brethren. So he's speaking to Israel, or actually he's speaking to the church, which is a mixed congregation. He's being emphatic about this. That's why he starts off calling them brothers. He's, listen to me. Listen what I'm getting ready to say to you. And this is what he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And so Paul's desire and prayer are the salvation of Israel, and he still prays for them. Even with the negative assessment that he's given about them in Romans Romans 1 through 9 that we've looked at so far. Even with this negative assessment of their rejection of the gospel, he still has a desire that they will Turn their eyes to Jesus and they will receive him by faith. And so what this means is that Paul believed that there, it's not that as though there's no hope for them. There's still hope for them. That's why he prays for them. And this means that he believes that God works through the prayers of his people concerning the salvation of others. And what it also means, and this is what it should mean for us that when we pray for people to be saved, is it means that we believe that only God can change their life. Only God can open up their eyes to see the need of Jesus Christ in their life. Only God can open up their eyes to see that the way that they're living their life is in his destruction. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're trying to talk to somebody about spiritual things. I know Gina has, because we talk about this a lot. 
But you, you talk to somebody about the things of Christ and about spiritual things, and it's just like it's, it's just like it's a blank slate. I might as well be talking to this brick wall. I'd have a more engaging conversation, though they're just not getting it. And that's because only God can give them eyes to see that what they believe and how they're living, that destruction is the end, and that they're absolutely wrong about what they think about life apart from Christ. And so one of the things that we say when we pray is that we believe that it is God and God alone who saves people by His grace. And so we pray and we beg and we ask of God, God save them, God open up their eyes, God ignite faith in them so that they may receive your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so Paul has this desire, and we, we saw a few weeks ago what this desire looked like. If you look back at chapter 9 in verses 2 through 3, notice what Paul says about the fact that Israel is rejecting Christ. He says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. And then he says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed. I wish I was judged from Christ so that they might be saved. So that was his desire. His heart ached. His heart broke. His heart was in pain. Whenever he considered the fact that Israel was rejecting Christ. You know, I have to consider when I think about this, that Paul had family members. He's talking about Israel. He had family members who were rejecting the Lord. And so when when I think about Paul having this desire and this heartfelt sorrow, that he's thinking about Israel as a whole, but he's also seeing the faces of those people that are closest to him. Maybe his mom, maybe his dad, maybe brothers and sisters, maybe cousins. Maybe those, th- maybe those people he were close to when he was a Pharisee. He saw those faces. And it pained him and it broke his heart. And it's what fueled him to pray for their salvation. Now, this kind of desire that I just described, this great sorrow, this continual grief, this feeling of, I wish myself judged so that they may be saved, that kind of passion to see people saved comes only from God. And it's one of the things that we as a church need to do is that we need to pray that God would ignite and inflame with us a passion, a pain, an anguish that when we consider that there are people that we love, people that we know, people that we work with that don't know Christ and may spend eternity in hell, it really should break our heart. And there, there is a, an element, um, I, think it's, I think it's very heavy, I think it's pervasive among us, of a sense of indifference about that. And, and apathy about the fact that there are going to be people who will spend eternity apart from Christ. And so this is what I'm doing here through this text is I'm calling us to pray fervently for people. And not only to pray fervently for them, but also pray, God, ignite within me a passion and a, and, a, and a heart that breaks for people that are lost. Now, there's a very loose translation called the J.B. Phillips translation, and this is how he encapsulates this verse. My brothers, from the bottom of my heart, I long and pray that Israel may be saved. May we all, from the bottom of our heart, pray and long for the salvation of people. Now, notice, not only do we think about his desire in this text, but notice what he desires 
is that they may be saved. Uh, and the, the mention of salvation means that Israel needs salvation from something. And so Paul's desire is that salvation from the judgment to come. That when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, he will judge the living and the dead. And those who have rejected Christ, they will spend eternity in judgment by God. And that's why Paul has this desire for Israel's salvation. And by the way, it also mirrors God's own desire. As we actually see in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so Paul mirrors this same desire that God has, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And this is the same kind of desire that we should have. So we, as we look in verse 1, we see this heartfelt desire for the salvation of people. Then notice in verses 2 through 3, he gets maybe a little bit to the heart of some of the problems with Israel and why they reject the gospel, and that's because of ignorance. Ignorance concerning the righteousness of God. Or to say it in other words, ignorance in what it means to be right with God. How can one be right with God? That's the question that Romans, one of the questions that Romans seeks to answer, and it's one of the, the questions that Israel has answered wrong. That what it means to be in a right standing with God. And it comes as a consequence of ignorance. So notice what, what Paul does say about Israel before he gets to this idea of ignorance. He does say they have something going for them. He says, For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God. So Israel has passion. They have passion for the things of God. In fact, this is something that Paul himself knew very well. That before he had his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he himself was a Pharisee, and he was full of passion. He was full of zeal. And that passion was such that he wanted to protect the tradition of the Old Testament and protect what he thought was an assault on the one true God, and it led him to persecute the church. And so when it came to the law, in fact, we actually see this recounted in um, by Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he kind of recounts his own life, gives somewhat of an autobiography about himself. Um, he talks about him being a, from the tribe of Jim, Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. He had zeal that led him to persecute the church. When it came to the law, he was blameless. And according to Paul, it's not that Israel lacked zeal and passion about the right things. It's that they lacked knowledge concerning God's righteousness. So they had passion, they had sincerity in what they believed, but they were still wrong. I think that's something we need to think about. And maybe some of you have this problem here this morning. That you may be passionate about the things of God and still not have the knowledge of God. You may be sincere about what you think about God and what you believe about God, but you may still not have knowledge. There's a lot of people that are passionate, even about Christianity. Passionate about what they believe. Passionate about morality. But they can have that passion and still lack knowledge. In other words, they can be passionate about what they know about God, but they're not passionate as a result because they know God. And there's a total difference in that. Because the idea of knowledge that I'm talking about has to do with relationship. 
So they're passionate about someone that they have no relationship about. They're sincere about someone that they have no real personal knowledge about. So this is what gets to the heart of what was wrong with the people. And they believed the right things in the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament as a foundation for what they believed and how they lived their life. But they were misdirected and misguided because of what they considered sincerity and passion. But it was without knowledge about what true knowledge is in regards to Jesus Christ. Now, knowledge is, as we find in this text, is connected to the righteousness of God. Now, if you look in verse 3, it says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Now, ignorance in the Bible is not understood as the absence of knowledge so much as it is a deliberate rejection of God's truth. In fact, according to Romans 9, 4 through 5, everything Israel needed to know about the righteousness of God was given to them. In fact, the epitome of the knowledge of righteousness is the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, who came from Israel and to Israel. Yet, they rejected this. So everything that Israel needed for true knowledge was given to them. They had the fathers, they had the covenants, they had the promises, they had the law, they had everything. They even had the Messiah who came from them and to them first. And this Messiah, he preached to them, he did miracles in front of them, and yet they rejected him. So it's not ignorance in the sense that I didn't know any better, it's ignorance in the sense I've told you this, I've explained this to you, you're hearing me, but you're just not doing what I'm telling you to do. So this is what happened with Israel. So they can't claim ignorance. The consequence is rejection. They have fully and totally rejected Jesus as the Christ. And now Philippians 3 actually continues to be helpful in thinking about this text. So earlier in Philippians 3, Paul kind of gives us what zeal means, what passion means. Here in this text, he's going to help us understand the connection between knowledge and righteousness. So in Philippians 3, after Paul recounts all that he was as a, as a Jew, he then says that all of that stuff he, he sought to gain in his life, he sought to accumulate all that success that he wanted, he considers all of that to be nothing more than sewage waste. In other words, he was saying, before I met Christ, my life was a complete waste. I pursued my passion. I pursued my zeal. But I just wasted my life doing that. And it wasn't until he found Christ that his life began to have meaning. And it began to have value. And so he says in Philippians 3 and verses 8 through 9, he says, I consider everything to be lost in the, in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as done so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so righteousness for Paul comes through knowing Christ. He spent his whole life 
trying to gain righteousness, trying to earn righteousness, trying to merit righteousness, trying to pull himself up by his bootstrap, kind of a do-it-yourself kind of attitude. And all that time, all he was doing was digging himself into a hole. He was running on a treadmill. He was going absolutely nowhere in doing that. But when he found Christ, when he came to know Christ by faith, then he found true and full righteousness. A righteousness that he could not achieve with a thousand lifetimes, with a million lifetimes. He could live from everlasting to everlasting, and there would be no way that he could earn enough righteousness to be right with God. It only comes through Christ. It only comes through him. Now, what we learn in this text is not only did Israel reject the righteousness of God in the Lord Jesus, but they sought to establish their own way by virtue of their ethnicity, claiming they deserved it by work. So instead of receiving God's righteousness as a gift by faith in the Lord Jesus, they rejected it and decided to go their own way. And God had given them the path. Even in the Old Testament, God had given them the path to righteousness. But time and time and time again, they rejected it. And it's the story of all humanity. It's the story of our own lives as well. Because within our, our natural sinful disposition is this, I can do it. In fact, one of the, one of the great you know, slogans of, of sports is just do it. We might as well put that over Christianity. Just do it, because that's how a lot of people think. It's a do. But instead, it's a gift. Salvation's a gift. Righteousness is a gift. Everything in the Christian life is a gift from God. Any good that we have, it's a gift from God. To God alone be the glory for that. That's, just, that's the heart of what Paul is getting at here in this text. And then in verse 4... He helps, he helps us to see and helps those that he's writing to see really what the essence of the law was all about. So whenever we think about the law, we think about this, the law is a checklist. I've got to make sure I go down and checkmark everything that I did so I make it. I, I get into heaven. I get into a relationship with God. One by one, we work and we check it. Now, I don't know if you've really thought about this much deeply, but if you start working your way down the law and try to checkmark it, you're going to find, I can't check this off. I'm an idolater. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a coveter. And so what the law is doing is it's pointing us away from it as something we do into something else external. And it's really what it's pointing us to. It's God and his grace that comes through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we looked at this last week in Romans 9 and verses 30 through 33, I mentioned that Israel's problem was not that they pursued the law, but the way they pursued it. So God actually gave the law to them for a reason. But, and it was, in essence, to pursue it, but not the way that they were pursuing it. And so here we are in verse 4, and it helps us understand Israel's failure in righteousness and the law. We're told that Christ is the end of law, which results in righteousness for everyone who believes. In a turn of events, not only is Israel ignorant about the righteousness of God, which is in the Lord Jesus, but they are also ignorant in regard to the law. You would think that if anybody knew the Torah, the Ten Commandments, 
everything that's, that's listed in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that Israel would know it. That the scribes and their Pharisees would know it. So after maybe they're working through this and listening to Paul, they say, okay, yeah, maybe we are ignorant about righteousness. And now Paul is basically saying in this text, you're ignorant about the law. You don't even understand the law that you've been pursuing for so long, that you've grounded your life in for so long. You don't get it at all. You have totally missed the point. They saw the law as a means to establish their righteousness, yet the law actually points to righteousness outside of itself. Righteousness of God, as we see through the coming of Christ in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the goal. He's the culmination of the law. He's everything that the law is pointing to. In fact, this word that's translated here has a range of meanings. It could mean end in the sense that it, it terminates. Um, but also includes both go. And I think that with the, the uses of the athletic metaphors that we saw last week in the text as this idea of uh, taming and um, there's, there's a lot of athletic metaphor that's being used in this, um, uh, in this passage that um, with that in mind, I think the idea of go best fits the meaning. And so Israel, they're running this race. And this race that they're running is to establish their own righteousness. And as they are running that race, they come to find out that there's a bunch of people that aren't even in the race who's winning the prize. And those people being the Gentiles. The Gentiles who weren't even running the race are attaining righteousness. And Israel, who is in the race, trying to live the law, they can't even attain righteousness. And so what Paul says in this text, basically with this idea of Christ being the end of the law, is that that's the goal of righteousness. That's what the, the law actually points to. It points to Christ. And so the, the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, yet obtained it, while Israel pursued and did not attain. Also, Christ being the end of the law in the sense of termination, so it doesn't mean like it ends, it does not fit, when considering that Jesus himself said he did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. That's the passage I read in Matthew 5, and verses 17 through 20, where he said not one jot, not one tittle, which means not one dot above the I, not one cross of the, uh, of the T, will pass away from the law. So Christ came to fulfill the law. So it's in Christ. It's in Christ. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we fulfill the law. That we can live in a way that we meet the standards of the law, so to speak. And the relationship between Christ and the law is important for us to think about concerning righteousness. Righteousness is needed to have a relationship with God to enter into his kingdom. And the law points us to the righteousness needed. Yet at the same time, it becomes evident that to keep the righteous requirements of the law is impossible. Now, Martin Luther told us that God uses the law as a sledgehammer to, sm to smash self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom, and self-help. And so this provides quite a predicament. This is where the Lord Jesus comes in. Earlier in Romans, Paul alludes to the fact that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh in order to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. That's back in Romans chapter 8. He says the same thing in Galatians 4, that Jesus was born under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. In other words, 
Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died upon the cross. And he rose from the grave for our righteousness according to the law. Jesus lived a life that you and I could not live. And he paid the penalty that you and I could not pay. And the penalty is is that we have broken God's law and we deserve God's judgment. So on the cross, Jesus became a curse for us. He became that judgment before us. Jesus took our judgment on himself. And he satisfied that judgment. And because of him, we can have everlasting life. Now, maybe this is a question that you may be asking. How was Israel supposed to know that the law pointed to the Messiah? I think the better question to ask is how the Gentiles received righteousness. They did not have all, the Gentiles did not have all the privileges listed in Romans 9, 4 through 5. They didn't have the promises. They didn't have the fathers. They didn't have the law. Christ didn't come to them first. In fact, it wasn't until Christ ascended into the heavens and until uh, Peter had a vision about Cornelius that the door was even open to the Gentiles. And so there had been a period of time that had passed before the Gentiles had even heard about this message of Christ. They never even got to see him with their eyes. And yet, by faith, they received Jesus as the Messiah. And in doing so, they attained what Israel was trying to establish. They attained righteousness. The righteousness that's required to be in a relationship with God. A righteousness that's not of, their, of themselves, it's a righteousness from God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that perfectly lived a righteous life. And by virtue of his righteousness, we are made righteous when we place our faith in him. Now, although most of Israel rejected the Messiah, others were waiting with patience and anticipation. So, I mean, we ask the question, how was Israel supposed to know that the law pointed to Israel? Well, let me ask you this. How did Simeon know that the child that he was holding in his his hands was the one that was to bring salvation to Israel? How was Anna, who never even laid her eyes on the Messiah, began to praise God for the salvation that had come to Israel? Because at that very same time that Simeon was blessing Israel, the Christ child, Anna, started praising God, and she never even got to lay her eyes on the Messiah, the Christ child. But she praised him. So Israel has no excuse. The way that Simeon and Anna and Mary and all the, the other Old Testament people that met the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the way that they understood it is because they were reading their Bible, and they were looking for the Messiah. And when he came, this was him. And so the problem with Israel as a whole is that they they were rejecting it. They were rejecting it. And I think it's the same problem that we see that's faced among many people and maybe some that are still here today. That your problem is not that you don't know, it's just that you're rejecting. You, You can't claim ignorance in the fact that nobody ever told me. Your ignorance is the basis of your deliberate rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The relationship between the law and the Lord Jesus was not ambiguous. 
or hard to understand. Rather, it was rejected outright. Instead of total reliance on God's grace and, and believing the gospel for Israel, Israel believed that they were obligated and that they were. And I think that's the same problem that we find in a lot of people today, and maybe some of us that are here, that we, we feel that God's obligated to do something for us. But God's not obligated to do anything for us. The only thing, I mean, we think about God being fair. I don't think it's fair that God does this or God does that. You know what the most fair thing for God to do is? It's to judge every single person. But I'm thankful that God does not judge me on the basis of fairness, of what's fair or what I deserve or what I'm obligated. Because if he judged me on that basis, I'd spend my whole eternal existence in judgment in the place that the Bible calls hell. But God responds to me in grace. He gives me what I don't deserve. He gives me the gift of righteousness by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And we cannot afford to be ignorant concerning the righteousness of God in and through the Lord Jesus. We are naturally disposed to follow in the footsteps of Israel, to seek by our own virtue, by our own will, to establish and work for righteousness. The righteousness required to be in a relationship with God does not come from within, but from without. It is because of the Lord Jesus. It is because of his righteousness, because of his perfect life, because of his obedience, even to the point of death on the cross, that we can be made right with God. So that one of these days when we stand before God in judgment and we are asked, why should I let you enter into my kingdom? We can point to him because of him. Because he is my righteousness and I'm clothed in his righteousness. Alone. Let's pray.